Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of one of our 2020 Elul study classes. We're going to kind of begin by um, thinking about the major kind of the big voices uh, of the Rosh Hashanah liturgy. We're going to listen to those for a little bit, and we're going to also try to hear some other voices that might be kind of underlying. Um, And so in terms of entering into this space of learning together, I want you to take a minute um, and kind of imagine uh, what it's like for you to enter the sanctuary um, on Erev Rosh Hashanah, Um, what that feels like, what the sanctuary looks like, um, what kind of feelings are you having? having what is it what it what are you experiencing now this can be something what it felt like last year it could be something it felt like you know when you were a kid whatever it is uh, if you want to also say about a particular piece of liturgy when you're doing that imagining it can be that moment of entrance it can be um avinu malkeinu right it could be natanic toke if one of those kind of big rosh hashanah pieces of liturgy just take a minute and kind of like imagine yourself entering into that space. Okay. Um, I'm Jay, and <laughs> yeah. what, came into, what came into my head, of course, was the shofar blowing. And um, especially the right. idea of, in, in my community, Temple Israel, Long Beach, there's usually people all over the, the sanctuary when we're blowing the, 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 the shofar, and it's so pretty, so you can hear it all over the whole sanctuary, and it's just very special. Great. Okay. So definitely the shofar image is this very dominating image, especially when I'm imagining kind of what it feels like. The sensory experience of Rosh Hashanah is a major part of that. And I think one another thing you're saying, what you experience the shofar is like the largeness of it, right? Everyone can hear it. It's a really big sound and I'm in a big space and there's something big and communal about that. Now, obviously this year we have a lot of things to think about and talk about in terms of that. But yeah, the shofar and the bigness and the communal aspect of it. Yeah, Larry. Yeah, what came to mind to me was the Kol Nidre with all the Torahs out. possible someone's talking when they're on. Yeah, the Torahs are all out and all the solemnity of the Kol Nidre experience. That's very strong for me. We're thinking fast forwarding a bit to Yom Kippur, but we take out all the Torahs, right? And there's something extremely kind of majestic, I think, about that image. Um, I think there are also the Torahs, I don't know how it is at your show, but most of the time the Torahs are suddenly dressed in white, right? Um, there's the Yamim Noraim, the whiteness that we see um, in front of us. Okay, any other, other, anyone else? Yeah, your cousin, your cousin Debbie has something to say. Okay, sorry, I can't see, I'm not in a good way. Okay. Maybe I have to read um, everyone. Okay, there, now I can see you all, sorry. Yeah, great. <laughs> One of the pieces is the first thing I think of when I walk in, honestly, is seeing everybody that I see sometimes on Shabbat, but a lot of people that I don't, and it's walking to my seat and, and feeling the warmth in the place and then remembering everybody with whom I have shared this over the years. Uh, some right. who are still here and some who aren't. And um, Shoshana, you mentioned Avino Malkano. Yes, that is my cousin. And Avino Malkano is, for me, always my uncle, our uncle. And so, yes, right. um, that and Hayom. Hayom has become the sound of this generation because my kids have always gone up on the Bema. So for me, yes, right. there's a lot of the, the, but a lot of it is about the family and the community that blends in with the service, not just the majesty of the service. 
Right, right. Great. Definitely. That sense that we're connecting to the people who are around us, the people who we aren't always around, but are sort of in the background who are now in the forefront, um, connecting to past generations and the future generations is also something that's going on at that time. Um, great. Okay. If anyone, there's one other person who wants to say something, if not, I'll. Vivian, did you want to say something? Sorry. No? Okay. Thank you for helping handle that. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> um, okay. So I will say I actually, one of the, I, I threw out Avinu Malkinu because I have to say, maybe it's our family. When we were, when I was younger, um, I went, I, we, I, I normally went to a kind of small Orthodox synagogue with my parents. Um, and on the Chagim, on, on the on Rosh Hashanah Kippur, we would daven in a hotel. Um, um, that was called, that was a special pop-up service that was called Young Piag. Now, you can imagine it was my grandparents and their, their uh, and my uncle, my great uncle who were running the service. So to me, as a kid, it seemed a little strange to call it the Young People's Service, um, Young People's Synagogue. But they started um, when they were young and they kept going. Um, but so for me, I, I'm saying this because as a child, the Yamim no Ra'im were something that was like a different world. You enter into this space, which is not your normal shul, and it's everything is white, and I remember the air conditioning being really cold. And I remember singing these tunes that we never sang in other, in other situations that I'm in. And again, that's because we have special tunes for Rosh Hashanah. But there, that majesty of we are entering into a new space, to something very different, um, that's completely different than anything else that happens the rest of the year, was always something that felt very, um, very strong to me. It was a place that had a choir and a chazen, which were things that I wasn't necessarily used to. Um, and so I, I think that for me, that, and I don't think that I'm the only one, and I think some of the comments were actually kind of reacting to the fact that I know that's kind of what it is, but I don't feel like it's like that anymore, right? I think we've, we've tried to create communities that have that warmth, right, that have this familiarity and all of those things, but part of that is kind of bumping up against some of those experiences that I think a lot of us have had of this majesty, majestic, kind of distant, far off um, thing that's happening on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Um, and I do think that that image is one that, you know, exists in the liturgy, right? When I come in and I say, Avinu Malkeinu, as someone who doesn't relate very much to a king, right? I think, what does that exactly mean when I talk about the king, right? It means that I'm, by definition, thinking about something that's pretty far away, right? That's not very close to me. That's an image that's a little bit difficult um, to connect to. But that's a major thing that we're doing on Rosh Hashanah, right? This is the day of the king. This is the day um, in which we are, are coronating God. Um, and so I would say that what started to happen when I had a little bit of a feminist consciousness, I was like, okay, so what, what is this king? What are we, what are we doing when we have God um, as king? So, um, so the images I think that we have that are kind of strong, these strong and somewhat distant images that we have Rosh so now we have this king image. You also said the shofar, and we're going to look a little bit more deeply into that. But the shofar is a loud noise. And I thought that your description was very beautiful because, again, you said, I look at the shofar and I see the way that it goes out to everyone, right? But there's also something about the shofar that can be a little bit jarring. It's very loud, right? Um, and when we say the shofar image is also very much related to the king image, right? We say every week on Shabbat, and you'll see this in the source sheet in a second, Right? What we're going to do, what is the shofar? 
the shofar. We should do it with trumpets and the blast of the shofar. We're going to blast out this sound before God the king. Okay? So there's something about the shofar that relates to that image of God as king. Dun, da, da. Right? That's part of what the shofar um, is about. Um, so, uh, and so we have, if we have the king and we have the shofar, I'm going to start sharing this resource sheet and you guys can start following. If you prefer to share it on your own, to look at it on your own, there's also a link, um, in the comments. And if you, I will just say, if you do want to jump in at any point, unmute yourself and I'm happy to, um, okay. Um, all right. So you have the center. This is an illuminated manuscript of Melech. We talked a little bit about the Melech. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about the shofar. And hopefully this is going to be a little bit associative, but it's going to get us into this kind of dominant image. We're going to problematize it a bit. So in the Babli in Rosh Hashanah, um, it says, Why do... This is a very famous text, right? Why do we, what, what do we do on Rosh Hashanah? Why do we use um, a ram's horn? And I'm sure you, most of you, I'm sure, could answer this in your sleep, right? Right? So why do we use the ram horn? Because it says you should blow with the shofar of a ram. So I will remember the binding of Isaac the son of Abraham, and I will, it'll be as if you have now bound yourselves before me, okay? So if we've added, we have, we've said we have, part of Rosh Hashanah is this king image, and we have the shofar, and what is the shofar here associated with? Akedat Yitzchak, okay? Um, and we're going to, we're going to think about as we, all right, I said, just to, to kind of build up what I said, these are the two, it says in Bamidbar, this is the one that tells us to celebrate this. It says, this is going to be a Yom Teruah, okay? Now this word Teruah, it sounds like some kind of blasting, but we're going to see that the Gemara is going to try to figure out what, that, what exactly that is. As I said, one of the ways of spinning what is Yom Truah, a day of Truah, a day of sounding a horn, is that verse in Psalms that I mentioned. Right? So you're doing something that's loud, do do do, and that is what this day is, okay? Melech, loud shofar, are kind of introducing the Melech. And we also have a Yitzchak. Now, what do you think the connection is? Is there a connection between that Melech image and the, the Melech theme and the Akedat Yitzchak theme, the binding of Isaac? Are those related to each other? Are they two really separate aspects of the day? What do you guys think? Now, remember also, we read the Akedat Yitzchak is one of the Torah readings that we read on the second day of Rosh Hashanah, and we're going to talk about that in a second too. Okay, so it, is a, it's, it becomes a strong part of the liturgy. So what I'm asking now is, in your minds, is there something, when I say, Avinu Malkeinu, God is king, and that's a part of Rosh Hashanah, and Akedat Yitzchak is really central um, to Rosh Hashanah, are those two things related to each other? Do you understand what your people think? Jeff, did you want to say something? No? Okay. Yeah, when, Rebecca? Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, yeah. Ellen. When, when you're talking about kingship, it's talking about God, you know, is the power and control, and even though it's uh, Avraham, that, uh, that uh, even though it was going to be a test, it's showing God's power 
And here by the Akedah Yitzchak, it's a question of being of service to God, of of obeying without question something which would otherwise be unthinkable to be able to right. do, to kill your only son, the one whom you love, even Isaac. Right, right, yeah. Uh, no, I think we're, we're purposely painting these initial images in very broad strokes, right? And yes, I think those are what, if I'm thinking about a king, what are, what are the expectations of how I'm going to relate to a king? You're damn well sure I'm going to do what the king tells me to do, right? And so the position of standing before the king seems natural that the, that position is similar to Abraham's position at the Akedah, right? God says, this is what you need to do. And you do it and you get rewarded for having done what God need, God told you to do. Hopefully it's not going to work out exactly the way that, God, that it was planned and it'll be okay. Um, but the, the submission part of it is definitely what we're going for, I guess. And, okay, that you suck. Um, and I already heard you kind of unpacking who spoke Jeff, I think unpacking Alan, it a little yeah. when you said, well, you know, God, uh, sorry, didn't, who was it? Alan. Okay. Alan, yeah. no. um, well, God, Abraham, right? We have many ways um, of trying to kind of deal with Akedah Yitzchak, right? There are many, many, many generations of readers of this text that on one hand find it compelling and on the other hand have a lot of issues with it, right? How could a good God ask us to do this kind of thing? Is this the level of submission that we're really being asked to do? Um, what are some other things that, I guess, when you read Akedah Yitzchak, what are some issues that come up? Like, what makes you comfortable, uncomfortable? What do you guys, what, what comes up for any of you? Does it feel, I, that's the kind of person that I want to be in front of God? That's not the kind of person I want to be in front of God? What do you, what, what do you guys, how do you guys relate to it? Sitting Denise, in the show. Denise, do you want to say anything? So, yeah, so like the idea of total submission makes me feel really uncomfortable. Um, but when we read it, um, the one thing that it, God never actually says, kill your son. So there's right, all this right. stuff about prepare and take him and bind and do all these things. And I feel almost like maybe this is a story about don't fill in your own blanks. And don't assume and don't jump to the worst conclusion and just stay present as much as you can. Right, right. Great. Okay. Yeah, so there's definitely this, well, if I'm looking for what's actually happening here, there's a lot of preparation, but there's something about the fact that the word actually kill your son doesn't seem to appear. And you're saying that's a kind of entry point, right? We have these different places where we're dealing with a text which may feel difficult, right? And a lot of the questions when we're dealing with difficult que question, difficult text is, okay, what is the entry point, right? And so what you're saying is that entry point is, is the fact that there is no actual killing and there's a lot of preparing and we're all kind of like, maybe there's a little bit of unknowing, right? Maybe Abraham doesn't exactly know what's going to happen, right? And maybe he should have, that, maybe that's part of the, the lesson. Okay. Um, Alan, yes. Did you have your hand up? Is that true? That was something that's always troubled me is that the same Abraham who argues so vehemently to save the people right. of Sodom and Gomorrah to go to 50 to 40 to 10, you know, all the way down when it comes to sacrificing yeah. his own son. And it's supposed to be his legacy. Yeah. There's the whole, the, the, 
as multiple as the, 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 the stars in, in, in the sky, he says nothing, but simply walks and, fo- and follows and, and proceeds right. without uttering a word in protest. Right. Mm-hmm. right. That's always trouble yes. in the story. Definitely. That's Abraham, who we know has the potential to argue, doesn't argue. Right. Um, right. It's very troublesome. Now, I will say I'm a little bit of a kind of traditionalist. I don't know traditionalist. Tradition. Uh, unpacking Akedai Yitzhak is also traditional. So I won't say it in that sense. But I will say that I do believe that Akedai Yitzhak is about mission. Right. I think that we can kind of try in different ways. And, you know, this is not I don't want to spend this entire year talking about Akedai Yitzhak. But I do think that that is part of that's the dominant theme of the story. Okay, I do believe that the dominant theme of the story is God wants us to give up what is very, very important to us. God wants us to submit to God's will and to what God says needs to be done, and we're not that. It does provide a problem because in other places, God seems to want us to question, and that's an issue. But I do think when we focus on the story, it seems like there's something that is compelling about being willing to give up everything, right? And maybe that's kind of obvious, right? But we're always in the deconstruction, so I just want to take us back to the the dominant voice of this story. And I do think, as I said, I think that's one of the dominant voices of Rosh Hashanah as well. This is a huge world. It was created by something much bigger than us. And part of what we need to do is just let it be and accept the fact that there is a force in this world that is far more powerful than us, that we can't really fight against, that we shouldn't really fight against, that perhaps we should just submit to. That's part of what's happening here. And I think it's important. I also think that there's parts of that that I relate to, right? I think the idea of me not necessarily being able to control the entire world around me is something that can be comforting, right? The fact that there is some God who's far away, who's in control, right? Um, who all I have to do is just, just go with what they say and it'll somehow in the end up, end up okay is something that I think can be comforting. Um, and at the same time, right, because of all of the things that you said, there's, and there's something that also is missing, I think, for a lot of us um, from those images of the king, of this strong voice, of this God um, who tells us exactly what to do and of the expectation that we're going to submit. And I think... Um, what we're going to do now is we're going to see the ways in which those kind of cracks, those other voices come in, um, both in terms of the biblical story and also in terms of the liturgy um, itself. So the dominant parts of the liturgy are definitely Yakidai Yitzchak and the, the king, but we also have some others. So um, we're going to look at it. All right. So we can actually see a little hint um, of this. Uh, if you looked, remember, we read the verse in Bamidbar. And it said, um, right, Yom Chiru'ah Yelachem. This is going to be a day of Chiru'ah, all right? Now, Chiru'ah is used sometimes in the Bible, but the more popular way of talking about it is Tikiah, Litkoah, okay? So we'll see that the Gemara kind of knows what Litkoah is, but Chiru'ah is a little shaky. Um, and that might be just because it's less popular in terms of the way that it's used. Um, already in the Targum, the Aramaic translation um, of, the, of uh, the verse in Numbers, it says, um, You should not do any, I'm sorry, I didn't have a translation. You'll have to follow arrows on it and I'll translate it into English. Um, you should do know where, uh, this is the Aramaic translation of Numbers 29. 
This should be a Yom Yevava, okay? And that word Yevava, we're going to see how that's going to play out, but it's some kind of um, whimperings or groanings, okay? This is one of the earliest sources that associates, remember, that's a little bit different, perhaps, than the, you know, right? You're blasting the, the trumpets before God. This says, this is a day of whimpering, okay? A, a day in which they were making whimpering sounds. And again, this text, the next text is, is pretty famous, and we're going to unpack um, bits of it. Um, and the Gemara gets into, I'm looking at Rosh Hashanah and 33b, and it's telling us the order um, of the tzkiot, how we do the tzkiot of shofar. And each, basically what needs to happen is that we're going to, they end up having three different tzkiot, and these different tzkiot all have to kind of be of equal length, okay? Um, so that's why it says the length of the tzkiah is three truot, and the length of the trua is the length of three shalosh yevavot. Okay, you can see that word too, shalosh yevavot, yevavot, again, that word, whimperings. Okay, um, and the Gemara goes on, shior truah shalosh yevavot. So the, the, the length of the truah is like three whimpers. Ah, 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 right, you know what that sounds like. But it says in a brighta, but we also have a brighter um, that says, mm-hmm. But we have another brighter that says, actually, it's a different, there's a different sound. The, the length of the trua is not the, ah, 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 you have a vote. It's a different sound, which is um, three shvarim. Eh, 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 it seems like, like a broken up sound. Um, and Abaye says, okay, as it is written, and this is supporting the idea of Yevavad, it being about Yevavot, um, you can follow on the English, um, it is the day of sounding, right, Yom Trua, and we translate that as Yevava, as whimperings, okay, so Abaye in Babylonia is actually quoting something that we saw from the Targum in Eretz Yisrael, um, uh, but this is just going to help us understand what these whimperings are. And it says, what is this? Okay, so what is this? It, there's one place in the Bible where we use that word, yud, that, that shorish, and it is in the story of Sisra. Okay, what the character of Sisra. Um, um, she, he's killed by Yael. Right, he's um, he is uh, killed tragically. Well, not tragic, tragically for him, but Sisra. <laughs> um, uh, um, and and we have this in the song of the uh, song of Devorah, which is also interesting. Right, Devorah is looking at her enemy, right, having fallen, and she describes the way that it was when Sisra's mother was anticipating Sisra coming home and knowing that he wasn't, like, not knowing where he was, all right? And you can look back, if we had more time, I would tell you, you would look more in depth in all of these stories. But Devorah having beat Sisra is, is, is singing a song and describing what this looks like. And she's describing this moment in which we, as the readers, know that Sisra is not coming home because he's been killed. Um, he's the general that's been killed. But Sisra's mother is looking and wondering where her son is. And that's that the Yabev M. Sisra. She's sitting there and she's waiting. So 
we also, I think there's a doubling even in that image of MC Stroud, right? Because on one hand, she's experiencing this to Yabev. She's making this noise out of a sense of anxiety, right? She doesn't know where her child is. We as readers are looking at Sistra's mother and we know what the end is, right? We know that Sistra is already dead. Um, and so there's a doubling in terms of anxiety and also sadness, I think, that's packed into that vateya um, bev, that yevava sound, which is the sound that we're making um, on with the shofar. Right. Does anyone have any questions? I like, kind of like throughout the story of sister. If anyone has any other questions, any questions, any clarifications that they need, happy to do that. Everyone okay? All right. So I, I sometimes I, I often sometimes think of this year as the hidden women um, of the Rosh Hashanah liturgy, and I would say that sister's mother is probably the most hidden. Right. We don't see her. She's not actually present. As we will see, there are other women who are a little bit closer to the surface. She's pretty deep in. Right. She's part. She's in a translation of um, of what the sound of the shofar is like. But once we brought her out. Right. I think we've 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 already started to have a counter image um, to that image of the shofar as the strong trumpet blast. And it's also an image that's a little bit different um, of associating the shofar with with Akedah Yitzchak, right? If, if Akedah Yitzchak is about submission, right, then um, this is, a, the, the mother of Sisra um, adds a level of anxiety of not knowing, right, which doesn't go so well with submission, right? In submission, I'm supposed to just submit and trust that it's going to be okay. And here we have a voice that's actually not knowing if it's going to be okay or being sad that it's not going to be okay. Um, and that is given legitimacy um, here. See, I did have you. I did get you. I forgot. Okay. <laughs> Through the window appeared this first mother and behind the lattice, she, Teyabev, and she said, why is this chariot so long in coming? Why so late the clatter of the wheels? And I think that, that there's a multi-sensor. She's hearing, she's waiting, and she's hearing, and she's anticipating. Um, so Sistra's mother is one of these women that gives us an alternative voice. Um, and we have a few others. And I think that we can look at these others um, as they're outlined, the kind of core text that will send us all over the place to find these other people um, is the, in the Bavli and Megillah. So that's source number eight. Um, the, the, this section in Masechet Megillah is probably the primary section on liturgy. Um, in rabbinic literature. Um, it tells us, I guess, a lot of Masechah Brachot deals with that, but if you want to know, like, how liter different, what, what you say on different holidays, um, how the Torah service goes, all of those kinds of things, that happens actually in Masechah, in this section of Masechah Megillah. Um, so it's a very interesting Masechah, if you're, especially if you're into shul, so you should definitely... Definitely do it. Um, okay, so it says, Rosh Hashanah, now we're going through what the Torah readings are for Rosh Hashanah, and I want to pay attention. Um, towards the end, we're going to loop back to this text, um, but for right now, let's look at what we have. On Rosh Hashanah, we read, Bachoresh Hashvi'i, all right? So the, the, it talks in a very shorthanded way, but you've already started to see these texts. So, B'chor HaShvi'i is that text that we had in numbers, right? B'chor HaShvi'i, Yom Tra'yelachem, okay? That's just the text in Parshat Pinchas that tells us that we're going to have this holiday, right? So, that's the Torah reading. According to this text, that's the Torah reading. We read that as the Mahir, okay? But according to this text, the main Torah reading 
is Bachorosh um, Hashvi. And the Haftarah, the part that we're going to read from the Nevi'im, is Haben Yakir Li Ephraim, okay, from Jeremiah, which we will look at in a moment. All right, but there are other people, the Yeshomrim, who say, you're not supposed to read, you don't read that, that section from Numbers. Instead, you should read Vadonai Pakad et Sarah. God, the Lord, remembered, visited Sarah, right? Is that part of our liturgy? The Lord remembered Sarah, Vadonai Pakad et Sarah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> that one is. <laughs> it's, it's what we read on the first day. Um, okay, and we do the maftir with, of, of, we have Hana. okay? So in the first section, I just want to understand what's happening here. In this first section in the Gemara, we have two options for what the Torah reading is going to be, okay? One is that it's going to be the section in Bamidbar that just tells us about the holiday, and the other is going to be the story of how Yitzchak was born, and how does that continue? Does anyone know? Here you can look down. What's, what's embedded in Vadonai Pakaretara? That story continues. Well, I'll tell you. It continues with, um, with the kicking out of Ishmael, okay? Of Ishmael and Hagar. That's what we're reading about. So we're also reading about God, uh, God remembering Yitzchak, but we continue that story and read about Hagar and Yishmael who were kicked out um, and then remembered and then saved. So that's actually the liturgy. So we have, we might've thought that Sarah was that extra woman that we're finding, but actually in some sense, it's Hagar, right? Hagar is the person who is gonna take a kind of dominant role in the Torah reading, um, if that's the Torah reading that we choose, right? Do, do people have a question, questions about that? Do you, are people following, we're flipping back between different verses, but that's the, the story that when I say the shorthand for Adonai Pakaret Sarah, that's shorthand for the birth of Yitzhak and the exiling of Hagar and Yishmael, okay? Um, so those are the two options. I think it's interesting that at this point, what is not one of the options at this point in the Gemara, in terms of what is the Torah reading on Rosh Hashanah? The Akedah. Right? Okay. The Akedah is not one of them. It's not one of the initial options. Okay? Either I'm just reading about the holiday or I'm reading about the, the throwing out of Hagar, the remembering of Sarah and the throwing out of Hagar. But it seems we can't say this for sure because we do have evidence that it was being said pretty early. But it does, it seems like there is a possibility that the Akedah was a kind of secondary um, addition. Uh, to the to the liturgy. That's not to say that it isn't dominant. It's very dominant. It's very strong. And this we can see actually happening within the Gemara itself. And it says, And now that we have two days, right, there's a transition that happens from having one day of Rosh Hashanah to having two days of Rosh Hashanah, another historical development that we could talk a lot more about. Um, but now that we're in that situation, and in this sense, the Babylonian Talmud and us are in the same situation where we have two days of Rosh Hashanah, so it's explaining, what do we read then? Yom HaKama, on the first day, Kiyeshomrim. Okay, the first day we read like those who say, right? Which is, who, what, who are the, what are the those who say? Badonai Pakara Tzarah, right? The story of Tzarah, Yitzchak, Hagar. That's what we read in the first one, the first day. Um, and after that, Ulemachar Velo Imizad Abraham. And the second day, 
we read about the Akedah, okay? And we then do the Maftir of Haben Yakiri. So what we can see is that I'm just trying to, I think that I, I find this text interesting because if I have an issue with the Akedah, it's interesting to see how the Akedah makes it in there, um, may make it in there secondarily. Um, and that the texts that we're looking at first are the day and also this other text, um, this text of Hagar um, and the text of Haben Yakirli, which we're going to look at in a second, um, and also the text of Hana, right? So the one that just pops out, we've seen it, we've added, we had this, the mother of Sisra, we have Hagar, we also have, um, we also have Hana, right? Um, so let's look at, um, at these. So I just want to, just because I don't want to leave one completely unknown, I want to look at Haben Yakirli for a second, and then we'll come back and explore Hagar a little bit more. Okay. Um, Haben Yakirli Ephraim, Haben Yakirli, I don't know however you guys sing it. Um, there's a lot of new liturgy things going on, Rebecca. I'm sure you have a great tune now. Yes. <laughs> uh, I don't, but Josh Warshawski does, and he's my cousin, so I'm sure it'll okay. be great. <laughs> okay. Um, all right, so the, the, the reference to Yirmiyahu is, this is a reference to Jeremiah. If you look at source 13, um, so within this chapter in Yirmiyahu, and I gave you just little bits of it, but you'll have to, you'll, you'll trust me that, that Ben Yakirli is also there. It says, Kol mar Adonai, kol barama nishma, nehi bechi tamrurim, Rachel mevaka albaneha, so this chapter in Jeremiah, um, we're thinking about God. God is remembering us as this sort of child. And we also have this image of Rachel, uh, the voice that is heard in Ramah. And Rachel is wailing and bitterly weeping, and she's weeping for her children, and she won't be comforted. Um, and they're gone. Um, and it says, um, For there's reward, it's, he says, thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from shedding tears, for there's a reward for your labor, declares the Lord. You shall return from the enemy's land, and there's hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children shall return to their country. So when I read those verses, when I do the Haftarah, those verses in Jeremiah, um, I'm thinking of God as a kind of softer father. That's part of what's happening. That's in the Haben Yakirli, um, Ephraim Yelad Shashuim, part of Jeremiah 31. But the other voice that we're also bringing in is that voice of Rachel crying. And what we can start to see is it's not only that we're bringing these women in, the women are crying, right? But even when we're, they're crying, they're crying in slightly different ways, right? When I think of how would you compare, I guess, maybe Sisra's cry, mother's crying or Hannah's crying, right? Hannah, we don't have exactly the word crying, but Hannah in the book of Shmuel also goes into the tabernacle, right? And she's kind of crying out. I don't know if I did bring you that. Yeah, I did bring you that, right? She's crying out, um, right? She's very upset. She doesn't have any children. And she goes and she prays. Um, and she cries out to God and she says, you need to give me a child, um, right? Um, don't forget me. Uh, you, can, you can look at Shmuel a little bit on your own. So there's a little bit of different, there's, there are these different women who are all in some sense crying. Um, but what I guess, one thing to think about, and again, I, I want to focus on Hagar, so we're going to get back to that. But even so far, Sistra, 
the Rachel that we see in Jeremiah, what we know about Hannah, um, they're all crying, but what are some differences between the different crying? What kind of crying positions do we have of these women who are introduced? And any thoughts? When we talked about Sister's Mother, we were talking a little bit about anxiety, you know, a double maybe anxiety and sadness. What does it feel like to be Rachel? What does it feel like to be Hannah? Any thoughts? I don't see any hands, but okay. I'll keep, keep scrolling. <laughs> all right, you guys with me? I'm, I'm having a, I don't see. People are barely here. Um, okay. Any thoughts? But no? I think that there is definitely, yeah. No, no, go ahead. Um, I think, right, it's okay to want. It's okay to ask. It's okay to demand. Interesting, actually, right, Rachel says, I refuse to be comforted. Right? Rachel's a very extreme example. The story of Rachel herself says, <laughs> ah, we lost her. Okay, she'll be back. Don't worry. Don't fret. She will be back. At least we hope she'll be back. It's the wonders of technology. Exactly. Is this image of unconsolable crying, right? I will not be consoled. I refuse to be consoled. And there's something that can be very powerful, I think, about that kind of voice, about that kind of crying that says, you, God, might tell me that this is the way it is. I refuse to accept it. I will not accept this, right? You say they deserve to be exiled. Sorry, I'm going to stand here and cry until you bring them back, right? There's something um, that is, can be, I think, sad about that kind of crying, but also kind of powerful that says, I will not be comforted. And eventually God brings her back. But when does God say to her, okay, don't worry. All right, fine. I'm going to bring them back. Right. But her cry elicits that kind of response um, from God. Oh, I have to share again. Right. Okay. Um, right. I think that it's also actually interesting. And again, there are so many texts and so many directions we can go in. The Hana text in some ways also Hana doesn't have any children. That seems to be a fait accompli, right? There's another wife, Penina. She has children. Hannah's destiny is something else. And Hannah also comes into the sanctuary. And the rabbis actually are very kind of excited about that idea of Hannah. Um, there are some famous midrashim in Masechat Brachot about Hannah who goes into the sanctuary and challenges God, right? And someone said, I was upset. One of the things that makes me upset about the Akedah is the way that God, that, that Abraham doesn't challenge God, Right? And to me, I think there, in some ways, Hannah is a kind of counterbalance to Abraham at the Akedah, right? Because Hannah says, I also, in a different way than Rachel, but also says, all right, you said, tell me I don't have a child. Well, no, I don't accept that. I'm going to come in. I'm going to cross boundaries. I'm going to go into a space that I'm not supposed to go into because priests are going to go into. And I'm going to tell you, God, this is what needs to happen. This is what I want to happen. And the rabbis expand on that a lot. And they have her, they, 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 they see Hannah as threatening God, as trying to kind of trap God into tricking God into doing what she wants. Um, but so Hannah, in a much more kind of challenging way, cries out and says, you know what? No, I don't accept this. Um, I think there are a lot of comparisons, a lot of ways of comparison Hannah and the Akedah. And I think it's beautiful that the liturgy gives us Hannah. And one of the ways of reading her is that the counterbalance here. She's the one who really has a stronger voice and argues, um, argues with God. Um, 
Um, we also have, uh, so as I said, so we have this Chana and Sisra, um, Rachel, and we, I want to come back to Hagar because I think there's also something really kind of interesting that's happening um, in the Hagar story. Um, the, obviously, part of the parallel uh, between the Hagar story um, and Akedat Yitzchak is that in both of them, there's, a, there's, a, there's an exiling, right? There's a destruction of the children. Um, uh, but um, Hagar, uh, so basically, so when we read Hagar, we read the fact that the, they're, they're sent out into the desert, right? If you look um, at, um, in Genesis uh, 21, um, I'll, I'll, I want to actually frame this in a slightly different way, but I want to say is sometimes it's really beautiful. Look, we have all these women, right? We have all these women's voices. Um, and from a feminist perspective, we're excited about that. And Hagar, we're happy to bring in Hagar because she's a kind of marginalized voice. And at the same time, one of the things that happens in, in, in Breshi 21 is actually women against each other, right? It's what happens when Sarah has a child um, um, and uh, Hagar, you know, Hagar, at first there, there's tension between because Hagar has a child and Sarah doesn't have a child, right? And then afterwards, once Sarah has a child, then the tension gets to be even stronger. So there are elements in which all of these women don't get along harmoniously, and there's something about the patriarchal expectations that actually make them fight with each other. Um, so the, the part that we read, right, we see that it says, um, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, who had born Abraham playing, Mitzachek, and she said, cast him out, right? Um, and Abraham famously, God famously said, whatever Sarah does, you know, says you should do it, and they send him out. Um, and there's this tragic scene, right, where she thinks that this is going to be it, right? And, and you can, there are a lot of parallels. It says, Vaishkem Abraham Baboke, right? Abraham wakes up early in the morning, um, and he sends out Ishmael and Hagar, very similar to Vaishkem Abraham Baboke, and he does that also for the Akedah. Um, and she also goes, right, and she wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba, and when the water was gone from the skin, she left the child in the bun of the bushes and sat down at a distance. A boat brought away, and she said, let me not look on as the child dies, okay? I don't want to see this happening, which feels very different than the way that Abraham kind of confronts the death, right? Abraham just, he's there. He's present. He's, he sees, we're going to talk about Abraham seeing, we're going to close that up in a second, but but she's unwilling to engage with the inevitability of Ishmael's death in a way that Abraham, for whatever reason, feels more comfortable with, right? All right, Yitzhak, you said maybe he doesn't exactly say he's going to die. I think it's pretty clear that he knows it's going to die. Abraham doesn't stick, take a step back. He doesn't flinch. And again, we can praise Abraham for not flinching, Right, but we can also see that the Hagar method, or whatever, the Hagar way of handling the fact that your child is going to die, is also part of it. I don't. This is inevitable, but I'm not going to be part of it. I'm not going to be the one who's next to the child when the child's dying. I, it's you, God. Right? Let you be there. You see the child. You take care of it. And ultimately, her stepping back in some ways almost leaves space. Right? Well, because what happens next, right? She says, I'm not going to look on as the child dies. She takes a step back, I want to argue, that Abraham maybe doesn't, right? And when she's sitting afar, she again, she bursts into tears, right? She also cries, okay? Um, right? And it says, she cries. 
וישמע אלוהים את כל הנער, ויקרא מלאך אלוהים אל הגר מן השמיים. Right? So she, God hears the voice of the child, and I think that's also interesting, right? It's Hagar who's crying out, and it says that God hears the voice of the child. And I think that that's another, from a sort of feminist perspective of what images we're looking for, I think that that, that crossover between the mother and the child is pretty interesting, right? The mother is crying out, and God suddenly sees the child, right? That maybe she tries to separate herself from the child, but actually, in fact, the two are kind of intertwined and interrelated. And there's, there's something about that image of mother that allows us to kind of be together with the victim, right? The victim is also, we are the victim, the victim is us, we're supposed to take care of the victim. There's a lot more room for kind of crossover between those um, two things. And we have again, very similar to what happens to Abraham. Um, and in that case, and he, he says, Right, um, what is it saying? And he says, Vayomer la malach Hagar, al tiri ki shama Elohim et kol hanar sham. He says, don't worry, Hagar, God has heard the crying out of the child. Um, and again, when you hear that one more time, you also hear, I think, the fact that Yitzchak didn't cry, right? Um, this child cried out, the mother of the child cried out, and that elicited this response from God. Um, whereas in the story of, of the Akedah, that, I, at least for me, that's one of the things that was also missing for me in the Akedah. Where's Yitzchak's voice? Where's Sarah's voice? Why isn't she there? Do we hear her crying out? Um, and there's something about this Hagar image that brings that voice kind of back into the, into the story. We'll see, and we don't, I, I don't want to hold you for too long, uh, but there are Midrashim that feel uncomfortable about the lack of crying on the part of Yitzchak and the lack of crying on the part of Sarah, and they put those back in, and maybe we'll have time to look at that in a moment. Um, but so what we can also see is the response to this destiny, to the inevitability um, of what is going to happen of these women is very different um, than the response of Abraham, and it elicits this, this merciful response um, in God, and God hears, right? And ironically, again, Yet not only, you know, God has to, the Malach in the story of the Akedah has to call out to Abraham. Abraham doesn't hear, he doesn't cry out. There's a kind of deafness that's happening there. And what we have happening in the story of Hagar is something very different, right? There's a crying out and there's a listening and there's also a seeing, right? God sees kind of what's going on. And that, um, right, it says, And there again, you know, God um, also opened Abraham's eyes and Abraham saw the ram, okay? So if you flip back and forth, you can see that too. Um, but the ram, and so Abraham sees a ram and what does Hagar see? Right, Vatar Be'er Mine, right? He sees, she sees this water, um, this, um, this, this uh, well of water and she fills it and she lets the boy drink. Um, and what does it say also? And God was with the child and he grew up. Okay. So how is that a little, how, how does that end story different from what we see in the Akedah? We see that in the Akedah, what is seen is a ram. That's a sort of, it's a switching of, sorry, I, it's a, I forgot English for a second. It's a substitution for Yitzchak. Right? So it's not a paradigm shift exactly, right? When he sees the ram, right, the position is the same, right? The position is one of sacrifice, of submission, of killing, 
right? Now it's subverted into a ram instead of the child, okay? But there's something that's similar, right? We're going, Abraham is going through a similar action to the action that he was expected to go through, which is kill something and sacrifice it to me. And in that way, show that you submit to my will, right? What happens with Hagar? Now, again, I acknowledge the fact that Hagar is different because Hagar is more of the victim than the one who's actually in charge of all of it, right? I understand that there are differences. But still, what we see when we compare the details, right? Hagar, what is Hagar provided with? What does she see? This this possibility of sustenance, right? She was afraid that she was going to lose the child because it wasn't going to have water. And now she is not, it's not that God provides the water, right? God provides her as the mother with an opportunity of drawing the water and being able to, again, sustain the child. And then the God that go, the God, what happens to God and the child? God is with the child. Not what we see at the end of the Akedah, right? There's another thing I think that's, strength, that's very strong in the Akedah, right? In the beginning, it says, They both went together. And at the end of the story, if you flip back, sorry, I haven't been flipping enough, and I hope you're following, right? Um, uh, I didn't bring you the, the, what happens next, but basically they don't leave together, right? And God is not with them. We don't have that phrase. God was with the child, right? It seems like an incredibly lonely situation. Um, so if Yishmael is now taken care of by his mother and seen by God, Yitzchak at the end of this is kind of left pretty much um, alone. And as opposed to script to that, I have to just throw out, this is a piece of Torah that I really like um, that kind of came to me one day when I was supposed to give a Dvar Torah and I hadn't thought of what it was going to be. It was Parshat Chaye Sarah. And then during Musaf Kedusha, I was like, oh, okay, I got it. Um, so I want to share this with you um, about this loneliness of Yitzchak. Um, so if you look, um, are people kind of, you're, you're following me, I know we're jumping around, all right, but we're, we're talking, we used, we were comparing Hagar, the story of Hakedat Yishmael and Hakedat um, Yitzchak. Um, and we said that while, uh, while, while Yishmael seems to end his Hakedat kind of supported by his mother and by God, Yitzchak ends in a way that's much more lonely. Um, and it's actually fascinating um, in the beginning, uh, in Parshat Chaye Sarah, if you look, um, it says, if you look at source number 11, this is Rebecca is coming, um, and this is the meeting point of, of Rebecca and Yitzchak, right? It's soon after the Akedah. Um, it says, so Rebecca and her maids rose up and they mounted camels and they followed the man, right, who had gone to, to get her. Um, and the servant took Rebecca and went his way. And now, Isaac was coming from from this place. And we're going to get back there in a second. Um, and he's sitting in the, the, the place in the Negev. And Yitzchak is going out. He's wandering around, strolling in the, in the sea, in the, in the field. Um, and he lifts his eyes. And he sees. What does he see? And there are camels coming. Vatisa Rivka and Rivka lift her eyes and she sees Vatar et Yitzchak and she sees Yitzchak and she falls off, uh, famously falls off, uh, of the, falls off the camel and she says to the servant, 
who is this man over there walking in the field to meet us? And the servant says, this is my master. And she took a veil and she covered her face. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother. And he took Rebecca and she became his wife. And it, what does it say? And he loved her. And Yitzchak was comforted after his mother. Okay. So I want to just take a moment with this text because I think it adds something in terms of what kinds of things we can expect from other people, from God in this context of Rosh Hashanah and in general, right? So Yitzchak, very quickly after meeting Rivka, he loves her, right? He loves her, sees her at the end. It says, quickly, camel falling off, they fall in love. So what is it about her um, that makes him love her? Well, where is Yitzchak coming from? Yitzchak is coming from a place called Be'er L'chairo'i. What is this place, Be'er L'chairo'i? We looked at part of the Hagar story, but if you might remember, Hagar actually had been kicked out another time, right? When she was pregnant, she was kicked out, and she had another kind of revelation. She thought she was going to die in the wilderness, and she wasn't. She didn't die, and God was revealed to her, and she was, she was blessed with this revelation, and that's what we have in Genesis 16, and God, she's seen by God, and she calls God a name. She says, Vatikrashim, where this is Hagar, she called the name of the Lord who has spoken to her, Ata El Roi, you are the Lord who sees me. Ki amra halom roi, al ba'er be'er roi. Therefore, she called this place where she was seen, be'er l'chai roi, the, God, the, the well of the God who sees me. So, Yitzchak is coming after the Akedah. Yitzchak is going to, has been in this place. What is this place? It's the place of Hagar, right? Part of what he's going for is his mother, right? His mother's just died. We don't know exactly what happened after the Akedah in terms of Sarah and, and Abraham. It's not exactly clear. And perhaps Yitzchak is going to look for his mother, his other mother. But I think there's more that Yitzchak is looking for, Right. Because if we said that Hagar saw the child, that the child was about to die, what did we say about Abraham? He didn't see, right? And in fact, we can see that in the Akedah, there are two things that, God, that Abraham sees. He saw the place from far away. And what else did he see? He saw the aisle. He saw the ram. What did he not see? His child. He didn't see his child, okay? We're not exactly sure whether his mother saw him, but if you remember in the beginning of the story that we kind of touched on, it says, right? She saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, who was playing around. So Sarai, it seems like maybe didn't really see her child either. She was very concerned with Hagar and Ishmael and all the stuff that was going on around, but she didn't actually see Yitzchak himself. And so what is so exciting about Rivka is, what does it say? Rivka raised her eyes, and what did she see? She saw Yitzchak. This is the first time in Yitzchak's life that Yitzchak has actually been seen, and that is incredible to him, and that's why he loves her so quickly. She, on the other hand, covers her face, right? Because sometimes it's a little intimidating and scary, right, when someone needs you that much and needs to be seen that much. Um, but, but it seems very clear that from Yitzchak, this is a point of redemption. Um, so I think that that, and we can, you can take that little bit of Torah and use it in lots of different contexts. Okay. But I do think what we're sort of looking at of these images is we can see this image of King who tells us what to do and of submission. And that's part of what's happening. 
But we can also see that there are multiple ways in which we can bump up against that image, right? One of the ways is to say, well, I'm not sure if I'm okay with what you're doing, right? Chana says, nope, not gonna accept it, right? Rachel, in some ways, accepts the tragedy of it, but continues crying, right? MC represents when I'm facing kind of some kind of thing unknown, right? The cut, the image of the, the king is a rather cut and dry image. Do what you're supposed to do, it'll be fine. Don't do what you're not supposed to do, it will be bad, right? The MC anxiety is, I don't know, is it gonna be okay? Is it not gonna be okay? And that's a big part of what's happening for a lot of us in Rosh Hashanah also, right? I'm not sure, right? One of the ways of reading a Tanatokef is, some will live and some will die, right? That's one way of reading it. Another way of reading it is, I don't know who's gonna live and who's gonna die, right? I don't know what it's gonna be, right? And in that sense, we can tap into the MC Sra image of, I don't know, is he gonna come home or not, right? Even when in some sense, and in our world today, we see a lot of the tragedy, we see it coming, right? But we, we're, we're nervous about it, we're worried about it, we don't know. And that image then of Hagar, I think, is a very strong image of what, what I really want, right? Beyond resistance, right? And beyond anxiety is also the opportunity to engage with God in a way that kind of demands being seen, right? And says, you know what? Wait, I'm here and I need you, right? I'm here and I want you to hear my voice and listen to what I'm saying. And that's part of what we're asking of God here. And I think that we also hope the other part of it is that God kind of needs us also, right? We want God to also want to be able to show God's help and need our voices and hear our voices and also hear God's voice. And that idea of that, that Yitzchak Rivka image, I think, is a very strong image of, wait, the alternative um, to the, the, the kind of image that we have in the Akedah can cause a lot of pain and suffering. Um, and we can't always get, get over that trauma. But what we can try, try to do is to create relationships that are going to allow us pathways out of it, right? We can't expect our relationships to heal us fully. But we can kind of at least fantasize about what it would be like if I was seen, right? What it would be like if I was really heard and imagine the redemption. I think that that's part of what's happening when we get to Yom Kippur and the Kohen Gadol coming out, right? Finally, we can see with our eyes that it's okay, that God has like seen us and listened to us and answered us. And that's kind of the trajectory. That's the place that we're trying to go to. Um, so I hope with all of these places, we have multiple entry points in terms of thinking about other ways of accessing, accessing fear, accessing anxiety, accessing a kind of demand for intimacy and listening and being seen. And some of that's gonna happen with God. And some of that, as a lot of you started, is going to happen with the people are around us, right? We also have to be adjust our expectations. What can we expect from God? And what can we expect of the people sitting next to us, right? What can we expect of the community that we're creating, right? And do we want to see them from far away? Or do we want to be able to see them and be seen in a way that's, that's intimate? Do we want to be vulnerable, right? Do we want to cry and say, this is what I need. This is what I'm upset about. This is what I'm anxious about. You know, I, I definitely, I, would say, I hope you would agree that being able to enter in this space of vulnerability is, of course, the ways in which we create a very deep sense of community. Now, again, now we're like, we're way deep into vulnerability, right? I think 
we didn't maybe last year we had to like challenge ourselves to get vulnerable. I think most of us are pretty damn vulnerable now. Um, but what this does is in, in some sense in the context of where we are now, it really elevates that vulnerability and it elevates the multiple ways that we might have of dealing with our own vulnerability and being able to create community based on that our needs and desires to be. So I hope that these are kind of images that you can connect to. And if you do have any kind of thoughts, responses, um, I know I, I wasn't that discussion oriented, uh, but I hope I gave you some ideas to think about. And if you do have any thoughts, I'm happy to, to open it up a little bit. I, I have so many thoughts. <laughs> Does anybody else have any, any thoughts or questions? <laughs> okay, well, I, I know that for me, I, first of all, that piece of Torah that you said you came up with during like the Musaf Amidah to give a drashan is brilliant. I love it. <laughs> and I love the idea that, that, that just in the name of the Erlechai Ro'i that you actually, you see life and you see someone being seen. Um, and that in all of the different examples that you shared, there were moments where God saw the person because they were seeing someone else, right? Mm -hmm. Like Hagar was, was afraid of her child dying, right? Going through pain and suffering. And so God saw the child because God knew that she, she needed to be saved from that. Um, and so in each one of those cases, God only kind of appears on the scene, so to speak, when the other person can see another person. Um, and I love how from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur, we can think about that as a way of structuring, looking, going deeper into ourselves, but also assuming that the people around us need that as well from us. Okay. Um, right. And just, wow. I mean, I started off this whole session by saying that you teach Torah with passion. And I think that everyone... <laughs> Everyone saw that so clearly, and I know that I'm walking away from this with much to think about and many just very interesting pieces of Torah that I think are going to going to really shape the way that we think about the Yamim Noraim come up, coming up. Um, Alan, if you have something very quick to say, I'll let you have the last yeah, word, the, and then we'll the, think. Yeah. Very quick. That whole notion of seeing... The, the whole thing with the Akeda and with the, the story with, with, with Hagar, there's discussions about whether it's Ra'ah seen or the related Shorish of Yudresh Aleph about being fearful. It ties into God's power, God's being seen, right. the awe of what takes place and the interplay of everything that takes place that's been so beautifully elucidated by Shoshana about seeing. I love that drash as well. It was brilliant. It, it, it's just very... It's touching. We need to be seen, and we need to be able to see as well. Yeah. I'll just Amen. Make one other, one set, one tiny thing. I just want to say methodologically, yeah. we did here right. Basically, all we did was look at the liturgy. Okay, like all of the things that we saw are there. They're all there. Everything was there. Okay, um, so I would say that take this source sheet, look at it, go through it, dive into it. But also the whole Rosh Hashanah Musaf, there are a lot, Shofar, there are many, 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 many biblical intertexts. Part of what you should do during davening, and now you'll like get through davening quickly. You have all day. What else are you going to do? 
look up all those stories, look up all those verses, right? And take the time to really go through it because I just brought it to the forefront, but it's all there. And that's definitely something that we can all, we can all do. And I hope that you'll be able to take with you as well in addition to the content, okay? And hopefully well, I'll come thank you at some point. <laughs> thank you so, so much. And I don't do this for, other, for other teachers, but because <laughs> the conservative yeshiva has such a deep place in my heart, um, I just want to say that Anything that you can do to support these teachers and to support the place of their work, um, I know is extremely valuable. And so um, I'm, we had two teachers from the Conservative Yeshiva this week. We had Dr. Joshua Culp, and now we had Rabbi Shoshana Cohen. And if there's any way for you to give a little donation to the Conservative Yeshiva in their honor and in their name and from learning from them, I know that it's much appreciated and something that um, I know we'll continue the Kansar Yeshiva to be this wellspring of learning and of Torah uh, that is so valuable to so many people, including myself. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.